I ran out of languages. I'm not very cultured. Oh, same. I just, uh, most of my language and pop culture references mostly come from Family Guy. Uh, anything outside of that, I'm just, I'm, 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 uh, I'm a shell. I don't know anything. Yeah, yeah. I speak a little Star Wars scribble, um, a little <laughs> bit of uh, Valyrian from Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, thankfully, this episode, uh, people don't have to listen to me and you chit-chatting. We actually have a very interesting guest and our first founder, first founder guest. Indeed, indeed. So uh, Saud Khalifa or Saud Khalifa, depending on which side of the planet you're on. But uh, <laughs> yeah, CEO, CEO and founder of FakeSpot. Uh, I'll let Aziz get into his relationship with it, with him, but mine, you know, um, when I was getting rejections left and right from all these different internships, he was the one that gave me my first shot, introduced me to the wonder, like wonderful world of software engineering. And honestly, he was a very, very big part of why I'm in my position and why I am a founder right now. Um, so, you know, definitely consider him, consider him as a mentor, as a, um, just an awesome friend, uh, someone who really took me under his wing and, you know, forever indebted, indebted to him for, because of that. Yeah. So Saud is actually a, uh, he, he was one of my first deals ever, actually, when I was working at my previous employer, as well as like, you know, personally, um, Saud is, uh, he, he's one of the few kind of really technical talents who sets himself apart by his immense abilities. He's very modest and doesn't really acknowledge that very much, but he is one of the most technically able people I've ever met. And I'm pretty sure I said that again during the interview. Um, so yeah. Saud is the founder of uh, FakeSpot. Um, FakeSpot produces a number of consumer tools built on a proprietary AI that helps uh, shoppers avoid counterfeit items, fake reviews, uh, and other bad actors when shopping online. And they have a whole suite of uh, consumer-facing products to do that. FakeSpot has a very interesting kind of genesis story. I mean, they've been through a lot. There were a lot of pivots in the very early days. It was very hard to even get people to listen through to the pitch because it was so out there. But they've come a really long way, and they've performed pretty well. I don't want to get into details, but I mean, well, I don't want to detract from the right. interview, obviously. But uh, yeah, oh, Sarit yeah, is, yeah. is an old friend of both of us. And uh, mm -hmm. like we said in the previous uh, podcast or two, that we wanted to start this interview series with people who were sort of in our inner circle, uh, mm -hmm. friends and friends of friends before we really branch out. And I really wanted uh, Sarit to be one of the first to participate. Yeah. And then one thing you'll notice is uh, simply the wisdom and the experience that he has has allowed us to kind of shut up and, and just let him talk because, um, yeah, I mean, of course, as he's, I think you've said this before, but it's just pure gems every time this guy opens his mouth. So, um, yeah, just just keep staying, stay tuned and just look forward to all the wisdom um, and all, all the fresh information that you're going to get. Yeah, and and I'll say it already. Um, there's a lot of things that have not, you know, hit market yet, and uh, one day they will. And when they do, we are definitely bringing him back for more commentary. So, without oh, yeah. further ado, yeah, let's get to it. All right. Hey, so how's everything going? It's going well. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, it's been a while since we last spoke. I feel like there's a lot of. Uh, catching up to do i know i know aziz has kept a very uh, very close communication with you guys and you guys have been through some some very interesting shit so looking forward to uh oh yeah getting into that did sir and oh, i yeah. go way back you know it's uh uh by the way sir uh, how do you feel being interviewed by an investor and an intern um, <laughs> i don't consider you an investor and an intern at this point <laughs> too much history yeah, too but, much. yeah, way too much history. There's a lot of history. Uh, we're, we're part of the OG gang, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Uh, I'm trying to start the first step of the uh, the fake spot mafia here. And indeed, indeed, this is very true. So, uh, Joe, yeah. I was here four pivots ago. Beat that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we should provide some context for the people listening. Uh, yeah. Mo Mo was an intern at in fake spot in summer 2019, and Aziz mm -hmm. is uh, actually the first investor. In fake spot, first yep. believer. So um, uh, from the institutional realm. So that was uh, that's super cool. Like we we have these the spider web of link between us all, and obviously you know I'm uh, born from Kuwait, came here when I was eighteen, 
you guys also have close links to United States and um, we all share this passion and, and Mo you're right a lot of things have happened since you've interned you know one month in startup yeah. uh, I would equate to 10 years in a corporate um, life lifetime oh yeah I, I definitely agree on that now now that you know sort of I'm 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 in the thick of it with my end uh, can definitely relate and understand the stresses that that I only saw as an intern back then but um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, let's see where we can get started with like, kind of your history, your experience. I mean, um, me, Aziz, I, I don't know if you, if you, yeah, if you have mean, any specifics. I'll, I'll start with this. Like, you know, I've met a lot of founders, a lot of technical founders in the years that I've been doing this, but Surit's going to be modest about this. Surit is probably the most technically sophisticated of all that I've met, and you have a very interesting story uh, as to how you wound up that way. So that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I would say the story is super random. But I think just like if you look at the foundational levels of someone's characters and someone's traits, you could tell like from, you know, the age of three, four, uh, you know, my, my son is now turning three this this month. So you could tell like what they will be doing their, throughout their life. You just need to look for certain patterns and signals and what they do, how they approach certain problems. And for me, it was, you know, um, I was very interested in electronics like as a very young kid and I would break down stuff and watch my dad fix uh, VHS recorders, you know, back in the nineties, you guys remember that or forgot about it? Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. I would I'll play with that and I was very obsessed with Walkmans and stuff like that. And then, you know, my brother got a PlayStation one I was very interested in the laser, you know, remember the laser that would read the CDs and stuff like that. Yep. And then, you know, I just got, um, my first foray into actual like program programming esque uh, problems uh, solving was on the Game Boy, and not the color one, the the one preceding it. And I had the Game Shark. You guys remember that? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it sounds familiar, but I might be too young for that, oh, unfortunately. You're, you're, yeah, you're from a different generation. So you're from ninety nine, man. Yeah, huh? you're a minor. Oh, really? Damn. Okay. So, <laughs> so the yeah, you definitely don't know this. This was out when mm. we were like 1996, 1997 or something, somewhere around oh, there. Oh man. The game like in the Game Boy, the cartridge in the back, you would latch on top of it this uh device which was called the Game Shark and you could basically um override codes within the uh, the original code that was inserted into the cartridge. So you could change certain things, you could program certain new aspects of the game. Uh, so that, that's where I got like, like, I was like, whoa, these little bits in this digital realm can do a lot of stuff on my screen, right? And um, that's when I was like, I remember I was super competitive, like, uh, <laughs> you know, like battling my other friends on our Game Boys. You would link each other with this uh, cable, this super thick cable that looked kind of like an Ethernet, Ethernet uh, cable. And uh, I believe it was called, called TS Link or something like that. And we would just, you know, battle with our Pokemons with each other. And I remember doing, uh, you know, um, trips, uh, you know, like just road trips in our in our school bus, and we would just battle each other. And I would have like the most pimped out <laughs> Pokemon that's level nine, 99. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and they then they started uh, avoiding battling with me because I'd win everything they would have. So you know, like that that got me really opened up to that digital realm and like just looking at those bits and codes. Like that's I think the first time when I saw code. But then my grandfather in uh, in Poland, he was actually a coder too. So he's very, I, I would say we were very similar in character. He, you know, this this guy had three bachelors, two masters, uh, two PhDs, and one post PhD. Wow. And and was something right after a post PhD in the in that system there. So he was an ultra smart guy, kind of autistic too, like in the way he would approach social senses. But he, he mm -hmm. got sucked into programming in the 70s and 80s in, in Poland, of all places, when, you know, um, things weren't that well back then. You know, it was still communist and stuff like that. But he someone had, somehow had access, maybe through the university, to uh, program in COBOL. And he actually, I, I saw a book of his in Poland when I would, you know, I would visit Poland every summer with, with my family. And I just grabbed his book and I'm like, hey, it's the same code I saw on the Game Boy. Maybe I could do some more stuff here. So then he actually gave us his computer, which was a DOS um, computer, and I would just play with it. I remember playing Doom, and I remember setting up code, and that—that's when I got really into it. 
And then my mom uh, got me a computer in, um, in the normal school year. I was the first person in my class to get a computer. And the way it started was my mom signed me up in these computer classes in Kuwait. Um, you guys don't maybe remember there was this uh, a forum called Computer Kids or something like that. Future Kids? Oh, I think. Future Kids, yeah, yeah. Future Kids. Wait, you were there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was there. My mom <laughs> I was there. Me. Hold on, this is You're... new. This is new information. <laughs> yeah, so we were we were there, but you know, like there was nothing programming about there, but it, it just got really like familiar with a computer, right? Remember the puzzle yeah. making stuff they would teach you and stuff like that. So it was interesting, but it wasn't really programming based. But I just wanted more control, like I wanted more control of the things I was seeing on the screen, just like you know, uh, harking back to that Game Boy experience. And then um, I would combine that with my grandfather's books. Got the computer, first guy in the class to get a computer when my mom bought it for us and uh with my dad and i got super hooked i started doing these uh, random codes i remember you guys remember the blaster worm the blue screen blaster worm blaster worm. oh that's actually that sounds very familiar actually i was born to like jazz jackrabbit and sky roads remember those no no no, mm. no, no, no. i'm talking about a virus so like there was this virus oh if you were connected to the internet through your modem uh, you would if you didn't update your windows and over modem in Kuwait, you know the like the ping and the speed was like abysmal. Yeah. Horrible. So yeah. many people didn't update their windows. So we had I remember Windows ninety eight, I believe at that time, and then we upgraded to Windows XP and it was something early. And then boom, I got a blue screen of death. Restarted the computer, and the computer got owned by this worm. And those are um, a category of viruses that would take. So, you know, that got me acquainted with like, whoa, you can do so much stuff with this and people can put this like, you know, this worm was pretty aut autonomous, like it was just crawling mm -hmm. across the Internet, probing vulnerable computers and that, you know, widened my area now to security. Um, but then I got uh, a, another programming book, Visual Basic 6.0, and that was basically Microsoft's interpretation of the basic uh, programming language that they kind of adopted when they... Um, you know, they, they bought out DOS, uh, then it was called MS-DOS, yeah. and their uh, bread and butter programming language that they would offer was um, BASIC. Many people don't know that. Many people think it was C-sharp. It was not. Where .NET mm -hmm. happened uh, much later. So there was Visual C++, 6.0, there was Visual Basics, um, and, and these other derivative languages were there. And I was messing with that a lot. And I actually started coding all the time in Visual Basic 6.0. So that was like my first fully fledged programming experience at the age of 10, 11. Mm -hmm. And I got it from uh, my best friend at that time. His father was a pharmacist and was interested in programming. I saw this book at their house and I'm like, whoa, um, this looks super interesting. I can make some card games for me and my brother and my friends. So I asked my mom and she's like, um, okay, I'll go get you some books. And she got me all these college books. Like they would teach, they would use these books for college. Like uh, they were a requirement for classes in college, but I loved it. So I learned all this stuff, got really hooked with it, started making programs. And then the reason why I mentioned this blaster worm is because then I got sucked into the security world where I was like doing real ownage and things like that. Mm. So, you know, that was like my very early childhood. And, you know, it goes back to like just problem solving, reverse engineering, breaking down things, breaking down electronic, breaking down computer programs. Um, I just had a passion of doing that, just understanding how things worked. I was very obsessed with that, very passionate about that and like super obsessed. And I think to this day, I'm even more obsessed than ever before to understand how everything works. Right. So, uh, yeah, we fast forward a few years and, you know, you, you go to Oregon, then Monmouth, and then something happens where someone games the system in their favor, not necessarily in yours in a particular way on e-commerce and an idea is born yeah yeah so i moved i moved to the us at the age of 18 uh, came here for college i was very close to going to the united kingdom i think my story would be very different in that case yeah uh, because i was in a british school uh in kuwait and a very closely linked uh, with the british you know culture and history but you know came here and i wanted to be closer to silicon valley so we picked oregon and i'm saying we because my brother also came he actually went first to st louis and then he moved to um, Eugene, Oregon. He was at U of O and I was at OSU, Oregon State University. So beavers, ducks. And I was there for about two years doing electrical engineering. It was called, the degree was called electrical and computer engineering. Unfortunately, it was very hardware based. There was a lot of hardware stuff. 
And at that time, when I was 18, I was more interested in the software uh, intangible realm than the electronics hardware, you know, tangible realm. So to me, I just did not really like it. I, you know, designed circuits and everything like that. It got me really acquainted um, with how logic worked at the circuitry level and stuff like that. Um, and then I moved to New Jersey. I went to this little private college called Monmouth. And what was interesting here, this, this college is super weird because they had only one engineering degree and it was a software engineering degree. And it was powered by all these people that left uh, when the monopoly of AT&T Bell Labs was broken up. All of them left that monopoly and grouped up together and said, yo, um, let's start our own degree at this university here that's local to us. They were at this place called Fort Monmouth that had a research lab for the government. So they were doing things for machine learning, natural language processing, and you know many many of the pioneering things that we take for granted today in 2021. Back then, this was super early days. Like neural networks back then were very simplistic and had massive flaws and things like that. Um, you know, like for example, uh, the final output of a neural network could not recognize and could not learn from the data that you fed it because of um, the weights were not transferring between the layers in the neural network. So, I, you know, I learned all these things from these professors, you know, like it was a close-knit group of people. One of them worked at, um, was doing rockets at one point in their life. Uh, so they were, you know, like I actually am very grateful that I did this move. A lot of people were like, what are you doing, right? Like moving from here to there, from one coast to the other, um, from one major to the other. And like I got culture shock in New Jersey versus Oregon, by the way which was very interesting for me. But, you know, this um, oh. being ingrained with these types of people that had a passion for computing that I really appreciated was uh, super powerful for me because it actually augmented my curiosity for computing. And I would end up like after class talking hours with these professors. And I consider a lot of them my mentors. Some of them are here with us today. Some of them have unfortunately passed away. Um, but you know, I've learned a lot from them. And in the final year of my graduation at Monmouth University, I was doing a dual like uh, bachelor's and master's degree in software engineering. It was Christmas 2014. And you know, you know, guys, like I'm a you know, obviously a very technological futuristic type of person. I always believe that our future is very much intertwined with the digital realm, and we are seeing mm -hmm. the signs right now, obviously. Um, you know, like everything is in front of us right now. We, we're seeing what, what can happen and what's possible. They, um, I also believed in e-commerce. So I was ordering stuff from Amazon in 2007, 2008, all the way in Kuwait. So I believe that, you know, if you wanted something, you just click it and one click and you get it to your uh, doorstep. So that was, a, you know, like a bit of a shared belief that I had with uh, Amazon's leadership at that time. So I ordered stuff all the way from Kuwait when I was like 17, 18, um, with money I earned actually from programming stuff. Like I would sell programs and stuff. And they- Did you also uh, have to sell your kidney to afford the shipping? I remember that. Yeah, no, the <laughs> shipping was super expensive. I used a PO box in New York City in the, in the dockyards. Yeah, so there was nice. a service in Kuwait that offered that. And um, you know, we would get the packages. So I remember ordering books, I ordered a phone, I ordered some, um, uh, some, or some interesting things. But I was a huge believer in it. So then fast forward a couple of years later, when I'm graduating, I'm still a big believer in e-commerce, still a big believer in like, you should be able to shop online and get it in one click. And then I ordered this supplement on Amazon and this is my final month in college life. And it was a supplement that, you know, promised, uh, I believe recovery in the, in the gym. And I'm a bit of a gym rat, you know, like that's my other obsession. I'm very obsessed with gym and also understanding how your body works, how your metabolism works, how certain compounds can enhance your um, exercise and recovery and things like that. Uh, you know, a very interested in the bio, biotechnical realm in this and uh, biohacking. So I got the supplement and um, I, you know, I got it in two days. It had hundreds of five-star reviews. I didn't even take a second glance at the reviews. I just trusted that rate, those yellow stars that you'd see. And it looked like someone manufactured this in a garage. They just slapped on some uh, printed label. It looked super awkward, like it was falling and peeling off. And then I looked at the pills and it looked like someone uh, scooped in wood dust from a carpentry shop. So to me, 
that was like, huh. well, like this is something off here. I'm definitely not going to take this. So I'm like, how come there's so many five-star reviews? There's no way they're real. So I went back, looked at all those reviews and noticed a lot of red flags. Like they were either written by bots or they were written by people that were bought out by the seller or the company that was marketing this product to make themselves look very legit. And, you know, I, you know, we didn't really get into this, but I have a security background. So in my teenage years, I spent a lot of time in the, let's say in the underworld of the internet and got really acquainted with how people game gamify certain systems and platforms. But this was the first time I actually saw this happening on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked at all those reviews and I'm like, okay, I can, there are a couple uh, signals here that I can utilize and actually train a machine learned model. At that time it was a SVM model um, because neural networks still didn't take off. This was uh, 2014, December, 2015. Um, uh, the more deep, deep based models that we're talking about, I would say they started advancing in 2016, 2017, 2018. That's when we saw the rise in voice recognition, you know, Siri and things like that. Before that, mm -hmm. if you guys remember, uh, voice recognition was super bad and image recognition was super bad. So there's a reason those things got better in the tail end of the 2010s because the technology just progressed so much better. Uh, so neural network based, uh, those flaws that I mentioned uh, mm -hmm. got resolved. Um, so, and you know, I, your, your first attempt at piecing together an algorithm to fix the, uh, the issue with the reviews that you faced on Amazon, that ultimately became uh, the reason I met you, which was FakeSpot. Yeah, so that, uh, so I, you know, I wanted something to help me out when I'm, when I'm shopping online because I don't want to spend hours of my time just looking at reviews and trying to figure it out. And I'm that type of person that will do that if I don't have a program. Like I'm not just I'm from mm. that moment onwards, I stopped trusting all reviews like it was done. Right. Yeah. And so so I wanted a program to help me out when I'm shopping online and, you know, to protect me from these issues. I was seeing that the platforms were, you know, either concerned with something else or just didn't care about it. So something needed to happen. So that's when the algorithm got formed. The first initial algorithm, I actually have the blueprint of it somewhere in my old laptop, believe it or not. I wrote out like this uh, multi-page um, like uh, white paper to how this thing, whole thing will work. Then I started implementing it over Christmas of 2014 in New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve 2014 and just got just super obsessed with this idea of resolving fraud on the social level, which is very different from the fraud that I was used to, which is, you know, like... Um, Let's talk about security vulnerabilities in programs. Like that's a very different category from the social level where you're reading stuff and it's actually manipulating you to do something. In this case, to buy a product. Right. And that mm -hmm. gets productized into fakespot.com, which was kind of the first approach to bring that to the masses. And this was before any kind of business plan or fundraising. It was just, just an idea out there. Yeah, like I was not really... So I, I had no uh, semblance of an idea of having a company, although I have done many companies in the past. Before that point, I have launched certain, uh, like you could call them companies and websites and things like that. I actually was launching like little companies and things like that in my teenage years. Um, so you could say that that was in my DNA, but this, this one, interestingly enough, was not like, hey, I'm gonna create this AI uh, powerhouse that's gonna detect fraud and, uh, you know, billions of reviews level like that was not the intent but the intent was to design the system to consume as much data as possible in regards to public facing information so like reviews and things like that to create this um a deep net link between everything that we are seeing so we have much better predictions of what is fake and what isn't fake in the case of reviews and other textual content and any kind of social constructs that you're looking at so i'm talking about upvotes down votes um comments mm -hmm. within reviews uh, whatever so you know it steadily expanded from there but the foundation of fake spot started then and it was with the in intent of you know data is power in the case of uh, neural networks and things like that and i knew that that was the case because of my studying that category of ai mm -hmm. so that's why fake spot was very much set up and today you know fast forward uh, a couple years we're at uh over 10 billion reviews collected and just to give you a comparison, TripAdvisor, the biggest hospitality platform in the world, has 700 million reviews uh, worldwide. And wow. FakeSpot has collected over 10 billion reviews, 1.4 billion reviewer profiles. Okay, 
and over 5 million sellers analyzed. And that number is growing rapidly day by day. So the more data we have, the more powerful we are in our semi-supervised, uh, semi unsupervised training that we can leverage for the detection of patterns that even humans won't recognize. Yeah. I mean, it's come a long way in the last few years, but I want to I wanna backtrack just a little bit to approximately about what, about four years ago at this point. So uh, to turn the spotlight on me just a little bit for a few moments, uh, I had just started a job in VC, my first institutional VC job, and I get inundated with my first few hundred decks, and most of them make these wild claims that aren't even worth investigating. And uh, something happens to me that has not happened since, which is I get a random cold email followed by the only call I have ever received on my landline professionally. And uh, this founder tells me that they have this uh, crazy new algorithm that can detect fake content. I'm like, okay, sure. It was about as out there as the other claims. And uh, I figured, uh, you know, if, if he had to call me on my landline, how technically sophisticated can he be, really? But uh, I, I have never been more grateful to have not immediately shut down a founder. Um, because what happened after that was we got on the phone, started discussing kind of the core of the business. And so at this point, it, there really wasn't much of a business. It was a product. Yeah, I mean, so the, the business model was not really hashed out at that time, because again, go back to the origin of the company. It was not with the intent of generating revenue and generating money, right? Yeah. It was with the intent of protecting consumers from fraud in this case that the platforms didn't care about. So the business was definitely um, secondary to the primary mission. And so, yeah, you're right. Like the tech was the main focus. And, you know, like you could obviously tell that my passion in building out the tech, I think in that landline phone call, um, you could you could you could tell that I was very obsessed with this idea of building algorithms, state of the art algorithms that can resolve these issues on e-commerce. Yeah. So an investor and you know former founder that you and I both admire, Peter Thiel, uh, you know, he, he's written multiple books and, and given multiple speeches about how by far the best differentiator is truly proprietary technology. So all else held, held all else held equal, uh, no matter what people do and try to replicate your product, they cannot replicate. The core of it which in your case would be the algorithm so from the investor perspective that was maybe the first thing that drew me in and uh, i think it was november late november 27 2017 uh we made the first yeah. ever institutional commit on behalf of my uh previous employer and that was actually my first commit in my professional career period i do yep. i do have a question from from a vc's perspective looking at fake spot in the early ages and this is more for uses but um so, you know, I'm guessing one of the first steps of due diligence you do is you look at what other players are and like exist in the market. So when you saw an algorithm as sophisticated as fake spots, mm -hmm. um, did you really see any competition or even so like when you started building this, did you see people building similar things or was there clear that there was like no market leader? Well, I'll answer first and then as easy can follow on the VC yep. question. But um, the the so what was interesting in the first two years there was a lot of copycats. I would literally clone the the website and the service and everything like that. But they would, for some reason, they would then break down because they're, the technology they used was very uh, statistical in the way they looked at fraud, which does not work. Like that's too simplistic mm -hmm. of an oversight in just like detecting fraud. So they would look like at things like as simple as ratios, like of, um, you know, like how the volume of reviews, the volume of the seller launching products and things like that. That doesn't work. Like the, the sellers know how to game that, to gamify that, because that's what Amazon is using as a low hanging fruit barrier to entry when you're registering. Uh, so right. to me, you know, like I was not, so there, there's a uh, there's a twofold answer here. First, honestly, I didn't really care about the competition. I only cared about building the best system possible. Like I was not looking mm -hmm. at anyone. And I, I think, you know, going back to what you said, Aziz, Peter Thiel says this too. Mm -hmm. Once you start looking at competition, and I think this is in his book, uh, Zero to One. When you start uh, getting consumed with your competition, you are now in that one-to-one um, -one realm and you're stuck because you're copying right. each other. And one thing that, I don't know if, how much you guys know about Peter Thiel, but um, he follows uh, this philosophy from his professor in Stanford um, that has passed away a couple of years ago. His name was Rene Girard. Mm -hmm. And he... Um, he had this theory called mimetic theory, which basically means humans are all ingrained to copy each other and um, mm -hmm. you know mimic each other. 
So competition is a very much a form of mimetic theory where uh, companies are copying each other and now they're stuck in this loop, feedback loop of just copying each other constantly and just battling and edging it out in a pretty much a zero sum game. So um, I, you know, somehow, somehow naturally, I was just not interested in that. I couldn't care right. about it, to be honest with you. But Fake Spot, when it was launched, uh, so this is the most important part. It was the first website of its kind where you just put in a product, mm. it takes in reviews, and then spits out a result. There was no such website on the internet at that time. There was right. fake review yes. research, there was academic research and things like that, but no one ever did a program where you're like in real time just plugging in links, and then it spits out mm -hmm. a result based off the reviews. That was not there. So then Copycat started doing that, right? Um, but I think, mm -hmm. uh, and now I'll let Aziz answer the VC part, um, on, on the on regards to the competition because the the second part to my twofold um mm -hmm. answer is uh, the second part is you know you don't want to be obsessed with the competition because then you're led to not being innovative right yeah so i mean very early on in the history of fake spot we were always at odds with the vcs because on one hand you know as as a vc myself at the time and now it's you know you kind of have to cater to the demands of the capital market you got to show them what they want to see in order to get them to invest correct and mm -hmm. uh, on the on the other hand um you know purist founders like Serwood and, and, and like others, like product is key. Product has to be key in order to build that base of customers, build the community, build the retention. Otherwise you're just one and done like the copycats were. They've all vanished, you know? Like they didn't have mm -hmm. the competitive edge that FakeSpot had just because the product was vastly quantifiably better. Um, so, you know, the competition had no success. And uh, I think in, in the very early days, I mean, FakeSpot was was purely consumer focused. Uh, you know, the website that Serge is talking about that was consumer focused. Um, right. You know, in the early days, because of investor pressure and outside pressure, and what you believe you would have to do in order to be a successful business. Um, and honestly, I've fallen victim to this kind of thinking as well. But it's when outside pressures kind of dictate your product um, roadmap, so to speak. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, Sarid can elaborate on this, but you know, Fakespot was not always on the exact same path. We kind of bounced between consumer and enterprise and different product ideas. Yeah, we did. So it was very much a product of who the investors were that followed Aziz. And um, <clears throat> the investors that we got on our first institution round, it was obviously Aziz, um, Faith Capital, SRI Capital. And the experience that um, this group of investors brought was more in the enterprise realm, the B2B world, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, Sashi Reddy, the, the main guy at SRI Capital, basically uh, sold a company that was very heavy in the enterprise world. And that's where a lot of his success is attributed to, like in that B2B realm. So for us, you know, we're in the B2C world, but SRI Capital and both Faith Capital, you know, like Faith Capital has had consumer businesses, but it's also very much intertwined with the B2B world in the case of like, let's say Dalabat or something, right? Where you're mm -hmm. connecting with restaurants, you're connecting with consumers. So there's like this proxy here. FakeSpot was like right. straight up, hey, consumers come here, use the site and we'll tell you what is real and what it isn't real. We never cater to businesses ever. There was no proxy yeah. here. So um, whenever we had board meetings or whenever we were seeking advice, you have to remember the flavor of advice and the flavor of perspective was more from that enterprise world and that led us down the path of um, we got actually emails from the biggest brands in the world. They were like, hey, FakeSpot, can you design a product that is an enterprise platform that can detect fake reviews for us? And that was now oh. a business need, right? And then, you know, we obviously collaborated with our main investors and we said, okay, we'll design an MVP product um, for this Fortune 10 company that came to us and said, hey, um, we, need, we need help with this. Because we actually so have an instead army of, of humans. They have an army of humans uh, filtering uh, reviews, which is not working too well. Yeah. yeah. So so what was it? It was like, instead of customer discovery, the customer kind of noticed your product serving another market and went to you and were like, can yeah. you apply this to our industry? Or is there any way you can do that? Yeah. Oh, there's okay. this, so I, I think also the, the, the team that was in that company, they were using the product as consumers. When they were shopping mm, on see. Yep. so they ended up they're like okay wait we can use this for our own products too and our competitors products to see if people are review bombing us or whatever and guess what there was no such platform on the market 
Yeah. So to us, you know, this was a, you know, again, a zero to one opportunity, just like Fixbot, its launch was a zero to one website, a service, an app. So we were like, okay, mm -hmm. we'll try it out. We created an MVP. Um, we went to the headquarters of this, you know, and I'm talking about a 100 billion plus market cap company at that time. Wow. Today, they're, they're way more than that. Obviously, a lot of things are way more than that today and with the market we were in. <laughs> right. So um, we showed them the MVP and they're like, hey, um, our contract durations are X, which was a signal that, you know, they were in basically. So mm -hmm. we're now set on the path of B2B SaaS world, which to me, as a, I was a novice in that world and I'll admit it. So I had to get mm -hmm. acquainted with it, but we had a, a good corner of investors that had a lot of experience, as I mentioned, including Aziz here, that um, mm -hmm. were exposed to the more, you know, B2B uh, 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 markets and things like that, industries. So to us, it was very interesting, you know, it was very, the feeling I got, it was a very uh, grind game. Like there was a lot of grinding, like ARR, MRR, churn rate and things like and you know like all those terms are basically to me synonymous with grinding <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah that was what i had that was the taste i had for the b2b SaaS world and you know it's fine it's totally cool but i had i kept having this tingling feeling about the b2c world like you know like we're leaving something massive behind here and you know the b2c it wasn't going anywhere yeah. it just was not the core focus anymore yeah, you know, in, in, interestingly yeah. enough, the, the thing that almost killed us was also the thing that put us on the right path, which is to switch back to the consumer focus. Now, uh, yeah. early 2020, I think a quarter no one will ever forget. Uh, some pretty interesting yeah. things happened with every company, but also especially at FakeSpot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, probably one of the most difficult situations we were in as a company. So we designed this uh, platform. We raised another round, millions of dollars, to build this fully-fledged enterprise platform for enterprises around the world. And we were all set to you know, become this B2B SaaS um, company, with the B2C being a lead conversion, uh, basically, to the B2B product. And you know, uh, to me, it was OK, because it was helping consumers at the end of the day. If we can help these brands with the fake reviews they're getting and whatever, um there was you know like th there was this intrinsic feeling that we we're actually still helping out the consumer at the end of the day but it was still you know there was this back of my mind a tingling feeling like hey you're leaving something massive behind here but then mm -hmm. february march 2020 happened and yep the companies that were signed up with us as pilot uh customers uh all bailed ship all of them had frozen budgets mm -hmm. all of them you know were basically headless chickens going around and you know all of us were scrambling basically at that time to, to put this in context i mean Serge, you and i were on the phone like every other minute back then and we went from you know kind of forecasting internally arrs in the seven <laughs> figures to going to literally zero and wondering how what what our runway looks like yeah the churn rate wow. was 100 percent at that point yeah she oh so so you're saying immediately pretty much your entire pilot program was like in a snap shut off yeah, we, we all crapped our pants. It was an interesting couple Jesus. weeks. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. Uh, by me telling you the churn rate is 100%, that's when they cut the ties with the platform. It's done. Um, they were, all of them oh. said the same thing. Basically, they're like, hey, um, we'd like to re-explore this again in the future. But to us as a startup, where the money burning every month and reliant with models that were built upon this revenue, mm -hmm. it was a death knell. Like it was like okay, right? Like what do we do right now? Like what do we do for the situation? So, March, um, April, May was the most difficult situation, but you know that's when the B2C started to become the focus again. And a couple of months before that, in November, December, two thousand nineteen. So here, here's very something very interesting, and uh, you know, Aziz, you can expand on this with the investor trend. Mm -hmm. uh, um you know trend mentality that they have where they're just following the trend right a yep. lot of investors do this whenever we mention our chrome extension in the past years before this b2b platform we would get laughed out of the room like people would say yep. you want to become an extension company like that's a joke and in the meantime you would see these big companies like well they weren't big but they were just getting bigger honey wikibuy mm -hmm. paribus all these companies were just like growing exponentially right mm -hmm. and i was like mm -hmm. This is a great market, but I kept getting laughed out of the room. Maybe it was the demographic of the investors that were more East Coast based that did not see the um, the importance of having such an experience in a browser like Google Chrome, right? 
or Chromium-based browsers. To me, like it was as mm -hmm. an amazing experience where we're in the browser in real time, helping out our consumers. How better? How much better can it get as a B two C product? Can and you have so many yeah. degrees of freedom as a browser extension that you just don't get with things like mobile? Yeah, or even having your right. own website, right? Like if you're on your own website, people have to come in, do stuff on that website, and remain there. It distracts people, right? So to right. me, like, just that sticky proposition that Chrome extensions bring, it was always like superior. And I actually launched the first fake spot Chrome extension again when it was on my own um, in 2016, uh, tail end 2015. That was when I was like doing the prototype version. And then in 2017, I launched a very popular feature, which was injecting fake spot grades on every product on, on the page, which people just love. Mm. And um, a little uh, maybe not, not well-known story about this, we actually offered a subscription where you paid $1.99 or $2.99 a month at that time to become a fake spot pro user. And people would pay to have these extra features, like more grades on the page, so that it would be a seamless experience. And we actually... I believe we reached about 1,000 um, users that were paying within the oh. first quarter of this launch. But then, um, you know, other things happened in startup land, and we, you know, we got distracted mm -hmm. again. And we right. just noticed that we needed a lot of marketing budget yeah. to actually uh, make this more efficient. So that's a little, uh, you know, known story. So, uh, but I mean, the the Chrome extension was resurrected towards I think it was May 2020 when we beefed it up quite a bit and changed the offerings, and all of a sudden, you know, the proverbial hockey stick begins to show on the charts. Yeah. So what preceded this, the the pandemic lockdown, uh, Honey got acquired for four, four billion dollars. So now all investors with the herd mentality were like, "Whoa, there's a huge market here. We just missed." So mm -hmm. that, that to me, like now gave me ammunition to actually completely pivot the whole company towards the Chrome extension when the B2B product collapsed. And that's what we did. In April, May, we started rewriting our Chrome extension to become more seamless, um, you know, more professional and easier to interact with. And we launched an overhauled version at the end of May 2020. And since then, it's been, you know, uh, basically explosive growth on that version of the overhauled Chrome extension. Uh, it really resonated with people and the rest is history. So, and that's how we raised our series A, um, just mm -hmm. based off the growth on that Chrome extension. And then we've expanded beyond that on mobile apps and other uh, browsers. And that's that's kind of continued mm -hmm. the up and to the right sort of trend of the charts. And, you know, it's 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 been a hit, however, it wasn't all smooth sailing, and those of you who have been following the company in the news know that. Uh, we had a bit of a David versus Goliath moment, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, you know what? Let's, David versus Goliath, I think from day one with any startup, it's always a David versus Goliath battle because mm -hmm. you, um, you're trying to disrupt the market of incumbents, and you're trying to carve out either a new market or trying to enter a new established market as if you look at any startup that's doing that and you know i, I would say david versus goliath was since day one nothing has really changed but it, the question is when do you become um goliath yeah or do you even become goliath oh. so so to me to me um you know like it's either progression or regression and then mm -hmm. in uh, the summer of 2021, you know, one year, around one year after our complete pivot to the B2C and the product suite that we were building out for the B2C product for FakeSpot, we l released this really powerful mobile app on iOS, which was, you know, the mobile realm was becoming our interest because a lot of people were, we, we noticed trends that over 60% of users were now on mobile and just shopping on mobile. However, what was interesting for higher price items, they would come back to the desktop. Um, that's just an interesting fun fact. So, you know, we were mm -hmm. like, okay, we need some presence on the mobile front because our app to that point on the mobile, we had two mobile apps for Android and iOS. It was like a bookmarklet app where you would share into the app and it would analyze the product. Not a very seamless integration of our experience, right? Mm -hmm. So we launched this mm -hmm. product that was basically uh, a secure shopping app. That's what we called it where you shop through the app on any platform that you shop with, like in this case, Amazon or Walmart or whatever. And we would show you grades as you're shopping in this app. One month after the release, we started noticing uh, interesting data trend. People were picking our app over the platform's apps. So 
like in this case, Amazon's app or whatever. And our user retention was pretty much skyrocketing on the secure mm -hmm. shopping app. Because once you use this app, literally there was no point for you to go back to an inferior experience where you're getting scammed or you know duped by fake reviews or counterfeits and things like that. So um, we had that app up on the App Store. Then we got a takedown notice from uh, Amazon via Apple. And Apple was serving as the proxy or conduit between mm -hmm. our legal team and Amazon legal team. And now I want you to bring this to your attention. At that time, $1.7 trillion company combined with a $2 trillion company going after a company that had, at that time, 17 people. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> if, you, <laughs> wow. if you thought that was like daunting as the, you know, when the pandemic lockdown happened and we had to do the pivot, now you have these two massive companies looking at you and like doing like, hey, um, we basically, you know, one of the companies were like, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to take you down. I mean, that, that mm -hmm. was the name of the whole process, takedown, initiation. You know, on one hand, on one hand, it's it's horrifying because to know that someone not only has that much power over what is effectively a tiny hole in the wall company, but is willing to to wield it and go with a you know coordinated PR push at the same time, and yeah. you know on on the other hand, it's it's fantastic validation because they never did this for anyone who ever considered themselves our competitors, and why would an entity uh, of that size ever you know? pay attention to a startup this small and what they're doing with the experience, with the user experience. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheticals here. Obviously, we can't tell what's happening uh, unless you're a fly on the wall. Right. But it's definitely, um, if you react to an app like this in, this in this manner, and you know, we were we just launched the app. We had a couple thousand users at that point, like nothing big to mm. boast about, you know, like it was like mm. up for 30 days. Um, but there must have been something that they saw that this was a threat to their um, to their model, where they're kind of losing control over users' behavior that they've been basically programming since the inception. So since the mid-90s till now, Amazon has programmed us as consumers to shop in a specific manner on their website. And I would, you know, um, very interested to see the user flowcharts of the journey on Amazon.com because I would say, there's probably pretty big uh, groups and categorizations of how people interact on that platform. Now, throw in fake spot into that user journey and look what happens. Disrupts the whole model of the user journey, right? right? So right. Why, why would you want to have a company like that around? Why would, you, why would you not flex your muscle and take them down? Right. Right? Makes sense. So, so, so one thing that I think, you know, um was very interesting here is i actually think it, it it made us even more passionate as a company to protect consumers because this was obviously unfair behavior okay mm -hmm. the whole takedown was framed as an intellectual property um you know ripoff which it was we never did right we're analyzing public facing information okay it's no different right. than you reading reviews right. and then analyzing in your head what do you mm -hmm. think about the reviews Okay, it's in this right. case, it's just our, our algorithms doing it. Okay, so that means we have no right to look at reviews and now to have determinations of the trustworthiness of reviews. So, you know, uh, it was obviously a very hectic time for us because, you know, this is now fall. We're in the fall going into winter. This mm -hmm. didn't happen that, that long ago. But it did, you know, there, there, are, there are consequences of such an action happening from uh such, such behemoth level scale companies and you know it kind of does change the game or the manner of the game and the way you play this game so to me it's been a very interesting experience and you know obviously journey and adventure so i have to say the one thing that was very very heartwarming by the way was just the outpouring of support that we got from users and even new users who only really came on board um because of that episode and uh, by the way, I, I should tell the listeners, I say we a lot. This is how close I've been to this company over time. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You've been very close. Um, I consider you one of the silent uh, co-founders. Oh, thank you. At this point, because you've been here since, you know, when it was just me. <laughs> you've been. That's you've true. Been, yeah. Uh, you've been with me. <laughs> and then Rob joined us. Uh, 
you actually i know i met rob before i met you uh, as he's uh, yeah. on that phone call but yeah we you know i would i would consider us one of the orig original crew at, at this whole journey so yeah you've been with us in every up and down along the way and there's probably going to be a lot of ups and downs going forward yeah you know what when you sign up for the startup like that's what you're signing up for like if you're yeah. not ready for that mentally and you know what physically people many people don't realize that physical your body takes a hit too with this which is why it's very oh, important yeah. to you know to exercise to practice you know prudence with your mind yeah. body connection and obviously balance it all out balance is very important so you sign up for this life and you either go all in or you go all out all right this is a no Agreed. tears podcast and we don't want any like emotional <laughs> bawling uh look yeah. we, we have a few I, minutes we have a few minutes to close and uh so there's a lot of things that i know a lot of things that you know uh that we can't necessarily speak of freely but i want to ask what mm -hmm. does the future hold for fake spot and uh i will i will leave it to you to share what you want to share well i mean anyone analyzing what fake spot does know what's the future is going to look like for us it's not going to change mm -hmm. we're going to continue protecting consumers from the issues that are happening on the internet and the problem here is the amount of trust deteriorating on the internet is just mind-boggling and it's actually at, a, at levels that we've never seen before the like you can't trust what you're reading on the internet anymore it's, it's, and it's quite yeah. sad and unfortunate that we've come to this position where you know um, the internet has been around you know the world wide web is uh, turned 30 right this year and the internet started as this repository of great knowledge mm -hmm. right and now has basically deteriorated into this battle of many different entities that are you know striving for profit profiteering margins dominance fiefdoms and i would call it a very much of yeah. game of thrones game of thrones of you know the big you know companies what? it was it was the library of alexandria and it was very well guarded and then a bunch of vandals and, and plagiarists were let loose on it and sadly that's what we have as the internet now yeah i mean i, I think so. yeah the the interesting part about it is always like whether it's a society or a system or an, an industry eventually because of human nature it'll boil down to fiefdoms and kingdoms that fight but it's just which side do you want to be on the one that benefits the masses or the one that just wants everything for itself i think i think that's yeah. you know that's something that honestly i've noticed also on my industry govtech with you know going versus massive corporations that like immediately privatize and do everything for themselves versus us that are taking a more community based approach network based approach and yeah it's just a very interesting common pattern that i've seen across multiple industries um although yeah, true it's true but like so we have this decentralization cycle now starting which is harkening mm -hmm. uh, back to the early years of the internet because it was very much decentralized like for example usenet when you uh, that that whole that whole protocol was decentralized the way forums would link up right. and the nodes on the network would link up um the core protocols of the internet like dns and things like that are decentralized right um mm -hmm. so we have we went from a decentralized to a centralized now back to a decentralized cycle and the initiation has just begun and uh it's interesting to see that because we have a couple fiefdoms that are massive and are dictating the way we should parse out and read and digest information on the internet and i think we've come to a point as a as a group that you know like maybe that's not the best way forward for us on the internet like the internet has brought us so many great things so much great knowledge just like you know i love that analogy as he's the library of alexander did for humanity mm -hmm. but now the um the library is burnt down and uh there's now only three categories in that library where it's one author for each category that's dominating the you know the voice of what the knowledge should be and i don't think that's the way you know going forward for us that's not what humanity is about and if you look at history that's when things start to break down yeah Exactly. I mean, Surd, I uh, I always wish we had more time. Never a dull moment with you. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, any any parting words for our loyal audience? Um. Uh, try to try. You know, like uh, there was this very. If you now the Squid Games has become like the furor of the internet, right? Everyone is talking about it now, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. The last scene that really resonated with me 
uh, spoiler I'm alert. Give, I'm not going to give a big spoiler here, but there was two questions asked. Uh, what is the cost of truth, right? And what is the cost of a lie? I just feel like those questions and the answers have been evolving for us as we're on the internet for the last 30 years. And I've been, you know, on the internet since an eight-year-old boy to now, you know, over 30-year-old man. And just to see the the patterns of how everything is changing is to me very interesting and how these those answers to those questions change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I will I will leave on this I will uh, leave the audience on this one point. Uh, download Fakespot's iOS and Android apps or check out fakespot.com. <laughs> download the Chrome extension, Safari extension, Firefox extension. So did I leave anything out? Well, so the Safari extension is coming out right now. It's very powerful. It's going to integrate with the Safari browsing experience. Um, our mobile apps, we have FakeSpot Pro launched on Android and iOS. Very powerful experience, too. It brings that extension. Um, grades real-time when you're shopping on Amazon and other platforms that we support. And our, obviously, our most powerful product is the Google Chrome. So if you're on Google Chrome, definitely check out our extension. Just go to fakespot.com. Um, we will actually show what is relevant to the browser you're using on uh, on the landing page. And so, uh, what's covered right now in terms of marketplaces? So right now we're we're supporting Amazon.com and all the English-based Amazon uh, international websites, including a couple uh, non-English-based. So we support Amazon India uh, from the English-based Amazon India, Amazon Australia, Amazon New Zealand, Amazon Canada, Amazon United Kingdom. And then Amazon, uh, Amazon. I believe there's a couple of new Amazons coming out, but we will we will look if we would like to support them. Mm -hmm. And for the foreign-based languages, we're supporting Amazon.de, Germany, Amazon France, Amazon Italy, Amazon Spain, and interestingly enough, Amazon Japan. Uh, so we support those on the foreign-based uh, languages for just for Amazon as a platform. And then we have support for Sephora, Best Buy, Walmart, eBay, uh, Steam and uh, hundreds of thousands of Shopify stores if you're using our extension. We will show a badge at the bottom of the page if you're about to get ripped off by the store that is powered by Shopify, which, by the way, the amount of websites using that platform is just exponentially growing. Yep, mm -hmm. agreed. So, thanks. Thank yeah, my, so pleasure, my pleasure, guys. It's, uh, it was fun. We'll do this again. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we should revisit in six months and see what else is new. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a lot of new stuff. All right. Oh, yeah. Peace out. Peace.